0: Hi everyone, welcome to episode seven. Hi Shane. Hello. So today's episode, we just finished recording. It goes a tiny bit long. So we just wanna encourage you that this is good for both the ride to work and the ride home. But it's a really good conversation about cybersecurity. We met with Terry, David, Brendan, just really great experts. We're excited to have members from CSASA's technical working group sharing their work. And in our last episode with Jerry Jones and Steve Monahan regarding disaster recovery, it really brought up a lot of excellent topics that we realized we needed a follow-up show. And so today you're going to hear all about cybersecurity.
1: And don't forget to check the show notes for links to resources that we discussed in the podcast. And on that note, we are now on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, to Jamie for helping, thanks, Jamie, for helping <laughs> spread the word about what we hope is a great resource for all of our colleagues in California IT and education.
0: And just as a preview to today's show, I want to let everyone know that I am shopping for an SUV because we invented three new bumper stickers. You're going to hear some great taglines in today's show. And I, I need I need a little something bigger to display all of those proudly after all that we learned in today's show. So enjoy. Thank you for listening again. And if you have any comments, feedback, suggestions, innovations, or specifically ideas for our would you rather questions or our either or questions, we encourage you to send us an email at podcast at That's podcast at site.org.
1: Enjoy. Welcome to Insight Podcast. In this episode, we have Terry Loftus, David Thurston, and Brendan Montaigne. My name is Shane Pinnell, and co-moderating with me is Jamie Lucetter.
0: Thank you all so much for being here. In our last episode, we focused on disaster recovery, both from a physical and digital sense. And today I'm hoping we can have all of you share your insights related to cybersecurity and threat prevention and how to best be proactive in protecting our schools and our students and our staff. So to open our show, we always start with a game that I want to interview all of you on. We do this in our tech department to get to know people, and how we're going to do this is I'll ask you an either-or question, and we'll all participate and get the show started. So to start, a fun one, cookies or brownies? David, you're up first. Ooh,
2: I'm going to go solid old-school cookie fan, but they got to be crisp. None of the soft cookie stuff. No cakes.
0: That's great. Brendan, what about you?
3: Ooh, See, I'm, I'm going to oppose David here, and I like
4: a really gooey brownie. Actually, so,
0: and Terry, uh, what about you?
4: So does that set me up to be uh, inclusive and say both, or am I cheating by saying both? Not at all. It's, that's fu- That's totally fine. Jamie, what about you?
0: Definitely cookies. I can't eat chocolate, so it's got to be a good cookie. Peanut butter, well, preferably.
1: Uh, I'm gonna go with Brendan and say uh, say absolutely
4: the brownie for sure.
0: okay. Our next question is a little more techie. Are you a trackpad or a mouse user? Uh, Terry, why don't we start with you this time?
4: Both again, but uh, definitely prefer mouse. Yeah, I would definitely
3: say both. I love the convenience of a trackpad being able to walk around my laptop. But if I can use a mouse, I will definitely use a mouse every time.
2: David? If I'm on my Mac, it's the trackpad. Best trackpad ever made is a MacBook Pro trackpad. If I'm using anything other than a Mac, which I do work, I'm always a mouse person.
1: I'm trackpad only. I got the little desktop trackpad thingy that works uh, really well. And then obviously the one that's built into the laptop. I haven't done the mouse thing in quite a while, it was causing me some wrist issues, which went away when I started using a trackpad. How about you, Jamie?
0: Yeah, definitely both. I was using the magic trackpad for a while with, with my Mac and love that, but I had this big spreadsheet project and I had to switch over to a mouse. It just was, it was, it was a tough day. So now, now, yeah, back to both. Okay. Our final one, Siri or Alexa, Brendan, why don't we start with you?
3: Ooh, that's a tough one. I definitely use both and I personally prefer Siri, but the Alexa Like speaking functionality, I think works a lot better than Hey Siri does.
0: Terry? You
1: just just triggered everybody's devices uh, (laughs) listening to the podcast. So that's
0: awesome.
4: You just need to say, uh, okay, Google in there somewhere too. (laughs) Yeah, for privacy reasons, I would say neither. But if I do have to use it, actually, I would throw out a third option, which is Cortana. Which has done a pretty good job on on transcription and some other things in applications like Teams or or using Word Online to do live transcription. But if we're looking at it from a privacy standpoint, because this is a cybersecurity podcast, I would generally say steer clear of those types of devices in the home or in classrooms. Good. good point,
2: David. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of not using either uh, both from a privacy standpoint, but also from a, a user experience standpoint. I don't think you, talking to computers is fun, and I don't particularly care for it. I've grown up on keyboards and mice uh, for and, and trackpads. I don't want to interact with the computer with my mind, and I don't want to interact with the computer with my voice. I, I don't think I'd go that route.
1: How about you, Jamie?
0: I use Siri the most. I think it's just super convenient to set reminders as I'm running around site to site all day and. Having a smart home, it's kind of fun to have Siri there to play the Imperial Death March when I open the front door and dim the lights when I yell at her. So it's pretty fun.
1: Yeah, I'm basically, I'm basically the same point, but I I understand where you're coming from, Terry. But my house is, my house listens. It's it's kind of a little scary sometimes, but that's okay. But not at work. Definitely not at work. I will leave it at home. Thank you for joining us today, Terry, David, and Brendan. It's an honor to have you here to chat with us on this topic. Please introduce yourself, tell us about your journey to your current position, and share a current project. And Brendan, why don't you go first for us?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me here today. I am coming in from an outside perspective, unlike uh, David and Terry, who who do work directly with SITE and the school districts. I'm actually with the Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center. And I've really only been in cybersecurity for about three years now. So being kind of young still, I experienced cybersecurity and I really did fall in love with it. So that's why I kept going with it. And I really love working with school districts specifically. And that's why I'm here today. So thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that
1: organization that you work for goes by another uh, shorter name, doesn't it?
3: (laughs) Yes. And we do absolutely love acronyms here. But the Multi State Information Sharing and Analysis Center also goes by the acronym of MSISAC.
4: Thank you so much. Terry, why don't you go ahead and go next? Thank you, Shane. Good to be with you all today. I appreciate being invited to the podcast. My name is Terry Loftus. I currently serve as the Assistant Superintendent and Chief Technology Officer for the San Diego County Office of Education. As far as a journey to current position, I don't know if we have that much time, but just a winding career through different types of roles in technology, getting into educational technology about 12 years ago. I've worked at a charter, I've worked at multiple districts of different sizes, and now pleased to, to serve the San Diego County Office of Education. Cybersecurity is a personal passion for me. I completed my graduate studies in cybersecurity, uh, information security, and uh, CISSP and and other certifications and so forth. And so it's not uncommon that whatever project we're taking on or work we're doing, that there's a cybersecurity component to it or or, or a lens that we're considering our work from a cybersecurity perspective. How are we protecting the data for our students, our staff, and our broader community members? So as far as the current project, uh, I do have actually a cyber security project that we are as a county office for the first time implementing MFA. We're doing it in a phased approach that goes live uh, with our first group next week. So looking forward to getting that underway, having that additional layer of security for all of our employees across the organization.
1: All right. Thank you. And MFA being a multi-factor authentication, similar to like that second or two-factor authentication for those that were unaware. David, why don't you go ahead and and, uh, share with us?
2: Well, my name is David Thurston, I'm the Chief Technology Officer for San Bernardino County Superintendent of Schools. My career, much like uh, Terry's, probably a little less winding, but uh, I started off as a student worker at San Bernardino County Superintendent of Schools working in IT. Went over to school districts, worked as a network manager, first field technician network manager. Came back to San Bernardino County as a di- IT director and then moved into the um, CTO ranks, was fortunate enough to get the, uh, the job there. So my experience in cybersecurity, really, from my early days, I was fortunate enough to be exposed to basic principles and concepts of cybersecurity and, and have mentors like uh, the late Aaron Barnett and, and a few others that have really kind of helped turn some of those introductions into much more concrete conceptual frameworks and, and practices so I also have the good fortune of teaching the cybersecurity coursework for the CCTO program for site. a uh, big plug for CCTO and anybody considering joining the ranks of the CCTO mentor graduates should do so. And hopefully I'll see you in class. And then I do a lot of work uh, in the school districts that we serve for trying to, to ensure that they're more secure and, and exposed to a lot of best practices. For our projects, I mean, we're always uh, undergoing a number of projects, cybersecurity related projects. We just rolled out or just finished our 2FA multi-factor authentication. We're taking some other steps too to probably introduce additional factors, if you will, not just uh, your standard phone-based factors, but we're looking uh, now at YubiKey-like solutions for some of our different classifications as well. And then we're rolling out, well, we'll be probably rolling out some additional SIM-style services in the cloud starting soon. We just finalized a contract with one of our our service providers. So we're really, really excited about that. Cause we've got a pretty extensive SIM installation here that is starting to get a little unwieldy locally managed. So excited about What that. is SIM David? Security incident event manager. So basically it's a big logging platform that allows you to a go back through your logs and see for forensic purposes, but also proactively you can set up triggers based on events, types of events that can either alert people, take proactive action. Like for instance, telling the firewall, the drop packets, those types of things. If it's fully fleshed out. Primarily, Thank you. You know, we use it primarily for a lot of logging forensic purposes.
1: Awesome. Thanks for sharing that, everybody. You know, that leads into the next question very well. Cybersecurity Day has me feeling like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz with lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Now I have to add Sim to that. How do you keep from feeling completely overwhelmed, David?
2: I feel completely overwhelmed every day. <laughs> no, I mean, I think this is where the importance of frameworks comes in and importance of partnerships. Uh, That's why I'm so stoked to, to be on the, the podcast with Brendan from uh, msisec but also my colleague, Terry, from San Diego of COE. For those who don't know, Terry is also pretty esteemed in the, the, the local or the educational cybersecurity world as well, because he does run the TSC cybersecurity subcommittee, which uh, he does a very good job at. But to my point about not feeling overwhelmed, I, I think using frameworks, we rely at SBCSS for, rely on the CIS controls as our framework for guiding our cybersecurity practices our cybersecurity decision making and uh, oftentimes uh, incorporating those practices into our operations and project management those help also that reliance on partnerships the partnerships with MSIAC the partnerships with CISA for their services, you know, ms ISEC can prioritize, hey, these are really urgent patches that need to be handled, right? Here's the monthly situational report. Here is, if you're using some of their services, here's what's going on in your DNS requests that we're resetting for you if they're, we deem them to be malicious. Through kind of integrating those tools in your daily practice and integrating those frameworks into your daily practice, it, it feels a little more organized, right? That's not to, not to say that I'm not always kind of like exhausted for being hypervigilant and, and, and worried about the next breach or worried about the next attack, but having those frameworks like the CIS controls and having the tools and partnerships like MSISAC and some of our vendor partners really helps. A big plug for just the general user community that is site, right? Yeah. Oftentimes you'll see me posting about urgent zero day patches but we will get really good information from other members about workarounds, their experiences in attacks and recovery, uh, their experience in defending from attacks, those types of things.
4: Thanks, David. How about you, Terry? I would start by saying that David said this jokingly, and I think rightly so, that being scared of what's out there is a very real thing, right? So even before we dive into how we break this down, how do we chunk it? How do we scaffold solutions and so forth? It really is important to recognize that the threats out there are vast and many folks suffer from that analysis paralysis, right? You're thinking about the, the so many different things that could go wrong, that it really keeps you from taking those forward steps as a team or a department or as an, or an LEA. And so I think it's good that we all give ourselves a little bit of grace, knowing that even as we've seen in the news, government agencies, big municipalities, others have been breached and there's been other incidents that have taken place place. And even when there's large sums of money, which we don't have in K-12 education, unfortunately, to dedicate to cybersecurity efforts and initiatives. So I guess I would say that first, because as I as I engage with district technology leaders and charter technology leaders, the conversations around incremental improvement and how do you mature your security posture, even if it's you know taking baby steps and going little bits at a time and iterating yeah. as you go along. So, but again, I would uh, agree with David's comments and happy that Brendan's also on this podcast because for us at a local level and also the work that David and I are doing at a state level with TSC, is really focused on implementing controls that are relevant, that are feasible, which that's a big trigger, right? There's a lot of frameworks out there that I know educational institutions look at and they're just too massive. They're too expansive. It's too complex to implement. And again, it can end up in paralysis and no action really being taken. I, for one, and I know David shares this as a fan of the CIS controls. And again, being able to look at a framework that whether I am a small district, we have a a district in the mountains of San Diego County that is one schoolhouse, 33 students, two teachers, a few administrators, and that's an entire district. That is a very different landscape than uh, our largest district, San Diego Unified, with well over 120,000 students and and thousands of staff. So the beauty of the CIS controls is, is that it really is, allows you to parse and kind of step through the process with a lot of guidance, recommendations, the overarching benefit when looking at it as an an LEA of different size or different resources available to you, that it's broken down into different implementation groups. So you can look at it through the lens of, all right, what are the most critical, maybe five out of the 20 security controls that I can implement in my organization that's really going to help us take some big steps forward? Is it perfect? No, because we haven't implemented everything. And even when you do implement everything thing. Surprise, surprise. That is no guarantee that you will not suffer an incident as well. So it's about incremental change. It's about thinking about how you can make those little changes today to have uh, big impacts in the future. And so I know we're going to dive into the controls probably a bit more later, but that has been a a real focus for us at the county level in San Diego and something that we're going to be working more with our districts in the coming year as we hopefully emerge from COVID and people have a little bit more bandwidth to, to focus on some of these projects. Ah, Thank you. And Brendan,
1: so both David and Terry have mentioned the CIS controls. Do you want to share a little bit more about what the CIS controls are and kind of how they came to be and and what, basically, tell us about the CIS controls.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I will provide a little bit of background because we are throwing around another acronym. CIS is the Center for Internet Security, and it is the parent company that hosts the MSI So I technically work for CIS, and they have, the CIS controls have been developed by CIS, as well as all of our members. So it's not just something that was built internally. We've reached out to private industry as well as public industry to try and develop these CIS controls. And what the CIS controls are is they are consensus-based best practices related to cybersecurity. And the best part about our CIS controls is that they are broken down into implementation groups. So like both Terry and David said, Cybersecurity is extremely scary and extremely overwhelming. So if you're taking steps, instead of trying to bite everything off all at once, uh, it can really help you become more cyber secure over time.
0: Thank you so much, Brendan, for explaining that. I have a follow-up question that I think we'll get into a little bit more of that. But before we head there, Recently, I was speaking with a district consultant that we have, and it's really about physical security. And they also have a cyber expert that I started to interview. And in a recent chat, we were talking about how when you're thinking about cybersecurity, you should really reframe your thinking to be very similar to physical security. So it's the idea that it's hardening the target, it's creating those strong barriers and working towards the inside for security. And then also he mentioned running simulations like red teams and blue teams. So I'd love to know your thoughts, David and Terry, on this, and even Brendan, just How do you feel about that concept of comparing cybersecurity to physical security? And then also, if we could talk a little bit about some of the lessons or challenges you faced during the pandemic. David, please.
2: The comparison is an apt one. It falls down in some ways. I mean, I totally understand why there is that comparison of physical security and cybersecurity. I think the analogies work for most of the low-hanging fruit regarding you know best practices, but I think that there are difficulties in terms of, of really trying to make that uh, to extending that and and I get why it exists. I mean, it exists because cybersecurity is an, a newish concept in terms of um, IT governance and IT operations management in terms of like full integration. And so what a way to introduce people to the concepts. Plus you, you have these uh, cybersecurity is also now a bigger part of, of financial and other operational audits that are outside of the IT world that you know, you need some kind of analogy regarding physical security for, and they are related. So Mm -hmm. I'm not, I don't have strong opinions one way or another. I think that the analogies break down. I don't really have any specific examples of how they may break down, except for COVID, right? Uh, to, To go to your question of COVID is that Your wall During COVID at school districts and at County Office of Education, our walls fell down and our operations still stood, right? We uh, spread everybody out and we told them to go home. We told our students that we were going to engage in distance learning. I told our teachers that they're going to be logging in from home and and, and conducting their classes. And I told our operations people, for the most part, you got to work from home. All of those kind of physical security analogies that we might have that we relate to cybersecurity, they all kind of fell apart and we had to extend our perimeter and we had to essentially allow much more access in many ways that we would normally felt comfortable doing in order to continue our operations. And that's where the true practice of cybersecurity is really important and distinguished, and specifically different from things like physical security, right? And so I think this was the year we all learned that those are two separate domains, and while they have they overlap in some kind of Venn diagram, if you will, they are very, very distinctly different. And so those those analogies fall apart. Did that answer your question?
0: I think that's excellent because I, you know, one of the challenges we face is IT leaders is trying to sell our story or the elevator pitch when we're talking about funding or trying to raise awareness. So I think you're right. I think that is a good place to start to help people understand the challenges and the direction we're going, but you're right, we have to we have to take into consideration the very new world we're facing with remote workforce.
2: And if I could jump in one more, I think where the analogy breaks down is like, you know, Hey, if you got some good locks and you have some good solid windows and maybe uh, a good fence around your house or a good, your physical security is pretty great. That's the old school thinking of the tools, the tools, the tools, let me just dial in the tools, not the processes, the practices and the follow-up. Right. And that's where a lot of different practice. I mean, that's where a lot of different emphasis happens to cybersecurity. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of it's a process, not a product. I think that's where starting, especially when you're trying to communicate, like you had just said, Jamie, when you're trying to communicate to the cabinet or when you're trying to communicate to board or when you're trying to communicate to non-technical stakeholders, if you're starting to use those physical security analogies and those, you limit the scope of really the amount of effort it takes and the amount of resources it can take to properly secure even a medium to large size network and, and all the data resources that are associated with it.
4: Terry, you got any thoughts on that? I would agree with David that uh, some of those analogies aren't perfect. I would say though, that really our mindset, my mindset is that security is everyone's responsibility. In fact, that's our our tagline for our cybersecurity team at the SDCOE. And as part of that, it's getting to that why or getting that buy-in that David referenced. And so where needed, uh, it is sometimes a helpful analogy to talk about physical security because our educators, whether they're teachers or classified staff or administrators, they really do understand that if you really think about it, and this has been made even evident from COVID, the physical safety and security and well-being of our students is priority one, even before the instructional piece, which Mm -hmm. obviously is the first thing that comes to mind when someone mentions education. They have access to vast troves of highly sensitive information. And so again, helping to to understand or making that at least basic connection for folks as an intro is a great way to at least start or make that mental linkage to the fact that it's really important the topic of cybersecurity and that it does require people, processes and technology. It's not just a, a buy a certain item, a one and done that we install a firewall and we celebrate that we're all done with cybersecurity. It's not that simple. So it is a far more nuanced and challenging topic than physical security, right? Partially because we've been doing physical security for since the beginning of time. And secondly, there's lots of limitations from a physicality standpoint. When you look at things that could happen potentially at a school site or at a district or a support site. Of some sort, whereas cybersecurity really can come from from anywhere globally. So it is far more nuanced. It is far more challenging. But really, when if our goal is to to help people understand that security is everyone's responsibility, whatever you need to do from a describing the why standpoint, I feel is a positive.
3: Yeah, I was just going to throw in really quickly. One, my obvious agreement with David and Terry is that it, it does a, a good job of starting the conversation of cybersecurity connecting it to physical security, especially for the non-technical folks. For example, we pitch so hard not reusing the same passwords over and over again and connecting that to physical security. You know, we have locks on our doors, on our fences, on our garages, on our car doors. We wouldn't use the same key for for all of those locks. It's a way to at least start the conversation, I think. But where the disconnect comes is you want to more secure your house, you're going to buy a new lock or maybe a more sophisticated lock. In terms of cybersecurity, you almost have to build that lock. So you may get, you know, if you want to put a new door and you may get a slab of wood and you have to completely make that for yourself and make it customized to your organization or your house, essentially. So where those connections start to break down is when we start to talk about how specific cybersecurity is to each individual organization Whereas physical security is you need to lock down your doors, you need to take these preventative measures that may work for everybody.
0: And then, you know, on the second part of the question, just the challenges you faced during the pandemic, I'd love to just hear both of you talk through, because specifically, David, you mentioned the expanding the perimeter, or we could even talk about the disappearing perimeter. What were some of the things that you kind of faced and thought through over the last 15 months?
2: Well, I mean, I think initially it's getting well over 2000 employees out and productive and then also obviously students back on. So a migration instantaneously from on-premise work to work from home, overly reliant on client-side VPNs, unfortunately for us, I mean, initially we were able to adjust as we realized this was going to go longer, right? I mean, we didn't have a playbook for this and we didn't have a play. We didn't have a forecast to say this was going to last a year. So, you know, we thought, okay, two, three weeks, we'll do client VPN uh, for the critical functions of the organization, Oh, this is a month. Okay, okay. So now we got to get more people back to work. Oh, this is two months. So now we got everybody's pretty much back to work. Managing that certainly was um, a feat in terms of scale, being able to scale up uh, concurrent VPN connections, ensure that they're secure, ensure that you have enough org issued devices as opposed to having, you know, you're not gonna go install that client on a a personal device most likely. And then also starting to evaluate Mm -hmm. the maintenance of effort and the security implications Mm -hmm. with those VPN clients um, attaching to your network from kind of unsecured locations and and with fewer controls to a, hey, can we do this in a different way? Can we present virtualized desktops or virtualized applications and get as much productivity as necessary out of the staff in in a slightly less I guess risky way. So having those conversations and moving to those in those directions, and then also try to scale that for our districts that just didn't have those VPN connections available for their own staff. And we have some districts, many like Terry's, one school, maybe two school buildings. I think we have one in the mountains, ninety-nine kids, right? Probably ten staff members of that they don't have a VPN concentrator. (laughs) How do we spin up resources so that they can actually access their financial system and handle payroll and continue to cut POs for their new cloud services they're going to have to. Obviously, migrating whatever cloud services to whatever cloud services that we could in terms of productivity suites and communication suites were really, really important for us. And then still figuring out how to secure those, right? And then reminding our users, by the way, you know, you... in a different world now and we haven't given you a lot of guidance on how to adjust to that world, we're just expecting you to adhere to standard operating procedures and policies, that took some reminding of don't go ahead and don't use your personal Google account to Mm -hmm. handle sensitive data, right? Mm -hmm. Use your uh, org issued Office 365 account. And also reflecting on how we engineer our security practices to be based on on on-premise work. So if we're looking Mm -hmm. at like network data loss, I mean, those are just about monitoring the egress and ingress of your network and having good SSL decrypt and inspection procedures. Well, if you're now all out in the, uh, you know, off your network and people are working via VPN and they're split tunneling to other services, you've lost a lot of that insight and and realizing, wow, that world, that engineering of on-premise security, you know, for on-premise security kind of uh, centric engineering was really valid March 12th, 2020. March 13th, 2020, it was invalid or less productive for us. So that was my, that's my analysis. And, and then having to re-engineer now so we can de- adapt for the next potential emergency. Then also realizing that we're probably going to have another set of implications with people coming back in with devices that have been gone for a year and while they may be receiving you know, some patches, they haven't been receiving the full maintenance treatment that we'd like to get the, get them. And what are they going to introduce into our network as we bring them back in?
1: That's one of the problems that's forefront in my mind right now. Is is as everybody returns, what are they bringing with them? It's a little frightening. Terry, do you have anything you'd like to share regarding the, the lessons or challenges faced during the pandemic, as it relates to cybersecurity? Any lessons learned?
4: Absolutely, uh, it has definitely been a year of learning, uh, yes. to say the least, and it, and it always is, but uh, especially this this last year. And the the point is valid that David has as far as you know how we think about protecting devices data, et cetera, really had to shift. And one of the big things that that we've worked with our districts a lot with, uh, and our charter schools has really been around Not only what are we doing for distance learning and supporting those students as they've been issued tens of thousands of devices across our entire county uh, from our 42 districts and 135 charter schools, but also the staff. Right. So this was touched on earlier, but it's an important point for our technology leaders to think about, because I know in all the districts and and even the charter that I was at uh, initially, there was a heavy focus for staff using desktop computers. That's just been the default way to work in many years past. And so for us to issue large quantities of mobile devices to our, our staff for a remote work or a work from home type model has been a big change as well. Because, again, uh, the, they have access to various levels of data that has uh, various degrees of sensitivity. And how do you do you manage those devices in a way that keeps them protected? And so David already talked about some of the important things around VPNs and virtualization and so forth. And I would say that even the other components, the, as far as making sure you're using systems, whether it's SACM or Intune on the Windows side or Jamf on the on the Mac or iOS side, to make sure that the updates and patches are being installed, because those aren't devices that your technicians are necessarily walking around and physically able to touch anymore. And again, with COVID and the restrictions, it's much, much harder to provide that in-person support that we've done in the past, and quite frankly, not efficient with so many people in a distributed work mode. So uh, I'd say that's been a big, big piece for us as far as us upping our game, if you will, on the support maintenance, hardware asset and software tracking so that we're providing devices to staff that are up to date, they are as secure as possible thinking about what we're we're installing on those devices, as far as endpoint protection and monitoring. The other pieces that we've leaned on even more heavily is, uh, as was mentioned, that it was a big conversation with staff at the beginning of the pandemic, because it was a bit of a hair on fire moment, right? When everyone was sent home. And so people started using personal Google accounts. They started setting up new Dropbox accounts, Box accounts, and so forth. And so we really had to improve our messaging on that. We went so far as to update our ARs and BPs, our administrative regulations and board policies, to explicitly state that, that uh, we're a, a heavy Office 365 environment. And so using those tools, they have those available to them. And of course, we've got visibility on that from all of our, our, our DLP settings to make sure that we're we're making sure that important information isn't accidentally escaping the organization. But living in the, that environment that's been provided really had to be a very explicit conversation and very, very clear in our messaging as to, again, the why, why you would not want to store uh, a bunch of IEPs in a personal Dropbox account or financial spreadsheets or other sensitive Information and adjusting our, our our board policies and administrative regs to align with that, as we supported people and and, and there's also a training component to that, right? Uh, Again, we commonly think about all the training that's gone to our our certificated staff and rightly so to help them pivot to distance learning and that mode of of teaching and learning, which has been challenging, but it's also a matter of changing perceptions and and providing training for classified staff as well around, okay, this is, uh, we're suggesting, for example, to use OneDrive to store your documents within our 365 tenant. Some people need, um, maybe have not used OneDrive before. Maybe they're more familiar with Google Drive or with Dropbox or some of these other other services out there. Again, not that those are inherently bad, but our environment has those additional controls and protections that help folks to stay on the right path when it comes to security. Brendan, I'm interested in hearing your perspective of lessons learned throughout the pandemic
1: from uh, from SAC's perspective, specifically around maybe changes or updates to the CIS controls that are being contemplated as a result of kind of that changing nature of the workforce. Uh, is Is anything happening around that?
3: Put me on the hot seat, I will say. I know we have a new version of the CIS controls coming out. However, I don't have too much background information on it. So I'm not sure how valuable it'll be, at least my input here. I don't necessarily handle kind of like the back end things of how we handle things as CIS and the MSI SAC. We've obviously been fully remote since last March but our members have definitely seen some some really hard challenges that they've had to overcome with just being in a virtual environment and whatnot, but I, I'm not sure how much more input I would have in this area, unfortunately. I'm sorry.
1: Oh, no, it, that's that fine. I mean, I, good security practices are good security practices regardless of kind of mm-hmm. what paradigm you find yourself in, but I'm sure that as, and, we've, as we have collectively kind of moved to a remote workforce, I imagine that there might be some some changes or, or some new, uh, you said it was consensus-based best practices that come out of, of our pandemic response. It might be a little too soon right now for those who have mm-hmm. bubbled up.
2: Shane, if I could jump in there real quick, I mean, I think yeah, that, that speaks to the, the the beauty of the CIS controls in that sense, if I, if I can use that term, or at least the functionality of the CIS mm-hmm. controls is that if I, re, you know, reviewing them, and I, and I look at them probably once a month, just for some other purposes, I don't see anything specifically there that says, gosh, this is really about being on premise, like this requires an on premise solution so uh, they're fair, they're, you know, they're they're really nicely designed in order to be flexible for that so you know they i, I totally totally agree that there hopefully there'll be some lessons learned that get integrated into that regardless, like maybe even identification of high priorities for remote workers right like implementation groups but also a subset of hey these are things that you need to pay higher uh, more attention to mm-hmm. if you have a remote workforce or mostly a remote workforce that would be kind of a compelling a compelling add on the one thing i did want to add and i think we all learned and i can imagine all of our school district um listeners will <laughs> and know this too is um, before the pandemic, I had never heard the term zoom bombing. And the idea of person-to-person communication security was yeah. a, a big deal. It, it became a big deal, right? Especially one person to many, even though I had had plenty of experience with other telepresence style or video conferencing style services, The vulnerability and the new attack surfaces that they presented and what those meant, what the implications were for school districts and what the implications were for governing boards and what the implications were for classrooms, that came to the forefront. And I don't think anybody, I mean, I'm sure there were some pretty smart people out there who who had been aware of this, but I had never heard of it before and I'd never seen it in action before. And so,
1: to be fair, it's it's not something that uh, afflicts Zoom only. No, correct, correct. All of them.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, an unfortunate
1: the, term of Zoom bombing. It should be like meeting bombing or something, yeah, but
2: the name yeah. de jour, right? But yes, yeah. no, and then that is to be clear because it could happen to WebEx, it can happen to GoToMe, yeah. it can happen to Google Meets, and it has. But just what that also means is that's another layer mm-hmm. of end user because most of that isn't really nuts and bolts, bits and bytes security, right? That's mostly end user mm-hmm. training some general kind of best practices on how you provision your domains, if you will, and your, your kind of policies that are forced mm. in those applications. But then again, it really comes down to how is the user, he or she managing her, his or her classroom or Zoom room or WebEx room, and how are they disclosing that information and how are they prepared yeah. to deal with disruptions? And that, you know, I think is a really interesting lesson that we've learned and will take away going forward because I think this model of hybrid learning and hybrid work in one way or another is going to be longstanding and, and with us for a while.
1: I'm glad you brought that up because it it also brings to mind the lack of controls that are available in some of those tools, certainly sometimes not available in the free versions. So you really need to to think about the implications of the things that you're implementing. Obviously, we had to make a quick response with the pandemic. So it's, it's completely understandable that a lot of people went with the free version of Zoom that didn't have the controls needed to stop that sort of thing. As time went by, we purchased and and the free tools are even updated to, to add those controls, but it's important to try to think through what the potential ramifications of implementing a new tool are and kind of thinking uh, thinking like, a, I don't know, I guess thinking like a criminal or thinking like a bad actor or thinking like the red team, I guess, and how could this be used you know, nefariously? That's an interesting point.
0: So I think to wrap up this opening segment on the, the kind of infrastructure and IT side of cybersecurity, I would wanna take a moment to go back to Terry's point about how cybersecurity is everyone's responsibility, and just maybe brainstorming a few ways that we can help get that message out in ways that are kind of a system or a process to kind of implement that in our world. So Terry, you had talked about in our pre-meeting about how you have a process for creating a project charter. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about that, because I think that's a really interesting way to make sure this is in the kind of forefront of everybody's mind.
4: I'd be happy to. And one of the prime uses or prime motivations for tackling each of these initiatives as a project is really ties back to that first set of comments made about how daunting the cybersecurity environment is, right? And everyone knows the old adage of how to eat an elephant one bite at a time. I think that we have found that not only is it a more efficient way to address any new project, initiative, acquisition, whatever it might be, but also from a mindset standpoint that we are breaking down a much, much bigger issue, an issue that's much broader in scope into bite-sized chunks, if you will, that you can really progress through. You can define who the stakeholders are, what the objectives are, what risks there are to that project, and really get a group together to define what success looks like or should look like at the conclusion of the project so that you know that you've completed that. So it might be something as simple as, hey, we're going to implement a new component to our help desk software so that we can do hardware asset management. We need to do a better job of understanding who has what devices and some intel on those devices. Are they up to date, et cetera? So, we can manage our life cycles and a whole range of other reasons. So, taking that as an example, going through a project charter helps get the right stakeholders engaged in the process. Because again, we know organizational change management is difficult in any form of government, right? Change is sometimes slow, sometimes glacial in its pace. To really affect change, you need to bring in the right stakeholders, you need to bring in diverse views, and you need to keep people engaged in, in the process itself so that it is a something that's collaborative. And, and again, based on the size of the project and scope of the project, it might be different sized groups. But we have found that unless it's something that is, for example, a configuration change that we might have at our change board and implement in a matter of minutes or a day. If it's anything beyond a quick change or quick configuration or a quick addition of a piece of equipment that we really want to think about everything we do from kind of the medium to large as a project. And so that's been very, very helpful to us at the SDCOE Shortly after my my joining, we knew that we had, beyond cybersecurity, we had a whole range of challenges or issues or opportunities, I would like to say. When it comes to completing projects, we had a lot mm-hmm. of projects as an organization that died on the vine or, or mm-hmm. ran out of interest or funding or whatever it might mm-hmm. be. So we have a small enterprise project management office, a, a small team of folks that have that expertise that have been trained in project management institute PMI practices and methodologies. And it's not rocket science, but it's, it's good sound processes that you can tackle any project, whether you're doing an infrastructure upgrade or you're doing tackling a cybersecurity problem. So Mm -hmm. for us, that has been very helpful to uh, not only from an efficiency standpoint, but again, to really break down some of these bigger threats, these issues that seem so hard to potentially wrap your arms around that Mm -hmm. you break them down. And uh, and again, that's uh, another plug for the CIS controls. That's where the controls come in and you can focus in on a particular control or a sub control and really have a laser focus. And it's good for your team as well from a morale standpoint, right? to to do projects, to get those wins, have those successes, because that gives people energy and shows that, hey, we can make a difference. We can move the needle here when it comes mm-hmm. to, to cybersecurity.
0: Yeah. And I would add specifically on the CIS controls, I think for me, my background is coming up from the classroom side. So my focus and the way I run my team is always from the teacher-centric and instructional side lens. So having the CIS controls to just fill in the gaps of the things I don't know has been really valuable. So... I would just, yeah, just add my own plug for that as well. For anybody that is on that side of the house, like I am just getting that overview to fill in the blanks has been really, really helpful, but then, yeah, then you have to choose kind of which ones to tackle and and do a little bit of a self-assessment to see where you really need to start your, your
4: work. I think that there's, you know, we had talked in the pre-meeting as well about some of the other things that come alongside the CIS controls. So some mm-hmm. people think it's just this list of controls, which it is, and it gives some good guidance and so forth. But there's a wide range of free tools for state and local government agencies that are provided by uh, ms and CIS. And so one of those is the CSAT dashboard that is available and, and it's great for baselining. So, for example, last year, my small cybersecurity team, we went through it and the instruction was to be just perfectly honest this is a baseline. We recognize that we've got lots of opportunities to improve. Let's map those out. And to have a place to store that information, A, and B, be able to generate some graphical feedback on that so that you have an understanding of where you're at in your journey is immensely helpful. So again, as you break this down and you tackle, let's say, a specific control, you can update that information, see where you're at, make progress. And the secondary benefit, which isn't, again, it's not the primary, it's more of a secondary benefit, but that also Allows reporting, right? So I have found, and myself, and at my county office, and also in previous districts that I was in, and I would encourage any of our listeners, you know, IT leaders, directors, CTOs, etc., that one of the things that's helpful is getting this information in front of your cabinet and also your board of education. Having something like this also helps you do a recurring report out. So if you do an annual state of cybersecurity within your your school district, let's say, or your charter, this is a great thing that you can keep going back to and showing the progress. And also, by extension, showing where you might need some help from a funding standpoint, because we all know mm-hmm. that that funding is very tight. Things like E-Rate currently do not cover the cybersecurity resources, whether it's technology or people that we need. And so having that, being able to, to start that conversation by raising awareness, again, of maybe your school board or your, your cabinet members, your senior leadership team, that's powerful. Mm-hmm. And it makes it much easier when you go back to your CBO or your, your fiscal director and say, hey, we've got a 10-year-old firewall that's not me meeting the, the, the needs of our organization. Mm-hmm. We need to spend X dollars with this vendor and it's, this is how it's going to benefit us and how it will help us improve our security posture.
1: I just want to point out that you came up from the classroom and that there's some gaps in your, your, perhaps some gaps in your cybersecurity awareness and experience. And that's true of everybody. That's true for me. I'll speak for David and say that's true for David. Terry might have it all covered. I'm not sure. But, you know, I think an important point with cybersecurity is is we have to be humble and we have to lean on our colleagues. And also, Mm -hmm. you know, that's why I really like the CIS controls, that consensus best practice. It's everybody getting together together. In raising everybody else up. So so don't feel like you're the only one with gaps, Jamie. I definitely have them too.
2: Yeah. And if you. I could jump in real quick to reiterate that, uh, that's one of the joys and good fortunes for all of us who work in public education and in the public sector, I think even in, at large, we don't have to worry about competitive advantage I mean, certainly there are there's pressures and, and especially at acute times during attacks and during you know potential breaches where that you may not want to disclose a ton of information. But ultimately, the amount of information sharing and the amount of kind of mutual aid, if you will, to some degree, mm-hmm. that is facilitated by organizations like SITE and, and then even on a technical level, facil- organizations at a nationwide level like MSISAC, CIS, That's such a huge benefit for public sector IT managers and cybersecurity professionals and and organizations as a whole. It's something that doesn't exist in the private sector. I mean, there's a lot of collaboration that goes on in the private sector and working groups, but ultimately, a lot of what comes down to competitive advantages is, especially in the the IT field, is your security posture and some of your techniques and your tactics and whatnot. But here, it's great. And so, yeah, there are holes. Everybody's got gaps in their knowledge. Everybody's got gaps in their investment level and in their practices. And none of what is discussed here and none of it is what I think what happens with Terry when he's working with his districts or working at the CESSA level or when I'm working with site is to point fingers and be like, you're doing it wrong. It's like, here's how we all can do it better.
0: I think that's such an interesting point that you made about just the investment gaps and the education gaps. And I think it's worth just pausing on that for a second because there are advantages or disadvantages depending on how you structured your funding and your refresh plans and really doing all of those assessments. So I think I think that's a really interesting thing to highlight. And I know, you know, we talked about ways about raising awareness, but even breaking it down to those two lenses is where are we not making the right financial investments and where are we not making the right training or educational investments either in our staff, in ourselves, in our team, those are important considerations.
2: And one of the things I think is great about the work that Terry's doing, and I don't want to speak for him here, you can jump in, but it's But I think I can speak to it for us as CTOs at County Offices of Education, is that we often get opportunities to talk to superintendents and talk to CBOs. So not just our IT leaders, but superintendents and CBOs. And I'm on a standing CBO meeting, and I'm uh, at least once a year, if not multiple times a year, especially in COVID, every time, every two weeks, I was meeting with superintendents. And mm-hmm. I got a chance to talk about cybersecurity and the importance mm-hmm. of incident response, the importance of investment, the importance of the underlying strategic importance and operational importance of IT. And this was before COVID. And now their eyes have been wide open. I think it was a great opportunity for SITE, for organizations like TSC and, and CESA in general, organizations like MSISAC to strike in terms of, of really reiterating our strategic and operational importance. And then with mm-hmm. that, The need not just for more resources, more resources, but strategically placed resources and understanding security investments are not something that you just handle once every five years via capital Mm -hmm. outlay, but they're ongoing and they don't necessarily have to be super, super expensive. Sometimes they're not necessarily capital outlay expenses. Sometimes they're FTE expenses, which people are shying away from, obviously, but that's the truth. Those conversations and that education isn't just about end user, how do you be secure? It's also about the strategic decision makers at districts and in county offices of education and other organizations knowing that this is going to be important to their existential, you know, their, their ability to exist, mm-hmm. right? Cybersecurity mm-hmm. is an existential risk and IT capacity is an existential need now. And the two are married and, and are intertwined, you know, almost genetically. So uh, it's getting a number, the bumper
0: stickers printed right now. Those are going to go. Yeah, that's that'll the be line. a long bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah.
2: uh, but I, I think that's, you know, I think if I could put on a site board member, you know, hat real quick as it's part mm-hmm. of our mission is site members and as site leaders is to communicate that with our, our partners at Casbo and at Q mm-hmm. and at AXA, the, the importance of the investments in these technologies, as well as always understanding, even at the executive level, the C-suite level, if you will, the cabinet level, the board level, cybersecurity is responsibility, right? And and, and I, I mean, I'll go back one, one more thing. It's just like I can remember having those arguments in cabinet in certain districts that remain unnamed about why I need to take admin rights away from teachers, right? Mm-hmm. I know that's a tough conversation. And Jamie, I could probably see you going, oh, wait a second, how is that going to affect instruction?
0: It, yeah, no, you know, I did that right before the pandemic. So I sent know. teachers home with no admin rights because I went through the CIS controls <laughs> and then is. we couldn't install printers in anybody's homes and we were doing drive thru, drive. Oh yeah, and I've done have, it, it's and great. And have
2: <laughs> unintended consequences. Yeah. Yeah. But having that conversation and, and now under having superintendent CBOs Uh, executive leaders, uh, even at the CISC level and just understanding to curriculum leaders like Mm -hmm. this is why we have to do this. We don't do this to make it annoying for you. Now we can find ways to try to minimize the negative impacts. But this is why we do this, because if you are in a district that gets hit by a significant uh, ransomware attack or significant malware attack, you're down, you're Mm -hmm. down, you're unable Mm -hmm. to teach. And that could be either in the classroom now, I mean, especially because it's on learning, you're down Mm -hmm. (laughs) online learning, but in hybrid modes, you're going to be less effective, right? You're going to be Mm -hmm. less effective. All those tools that you rely on to deliver curriculum, even if you're back in your classrooms. And so often I hear, oh, we'll default back to pen and pencil. But I think we all know now those days are gone. We're, we're yeah. too reliant. We're taking too many big investments in online mm-hmm. curriculum, online learning management, those types of things to say, hey, we're just gonna go back to pen and pencil. The learning loss will be significant if that happens. So we have yeah. to have that conversation. And I think now is the time to have that conversation because they see the importance of IT. For sure. That was long-winded and soapboxy, I'm
0: sorry.
1: That's okay, that's what we're here
0: for. I loved the passion, that was great. Just as we partner with EdTech for many of our projects, and we've been talking earlier about the education and training required to really stay up to date on cybersecurity, I'd love for us to talk about that in terms of our offensive strategy related to just staying ahead of things. Because every day I get the reports from the partners that I subscribe to about what the latest threat is and what to take action on. And it all comes down to the users and David, you mentioned admin rights. I was the tech leader that gave the teachers the admin rights back and that I was the tech leader that took them away. So that's part of our job. And I, again, I was weighing the instructional value and not having classrooms stop Because of technology, that instruction must be our primary focus. And then I was confronted with the real danger of instruction stopping for much longer due to a ransomware or some sort of virus. So I understand that very well now. But I'd love for us to talk for a little bit of just about training on cybersecurity. So if I could reminisce a little bit, my predecessor at my district was Enoch Kwok, and he was amazing. We had a program here called Tech Lights, and that meant teachers were kind of picked to be tech leaders and do basic training for staff and things like that. And that's how I got started is is he found me in the classroom, persuaded another teacher to let go of that position so I could take it. And then suddenly years later, I'm I'm running his program. So I remember a training that he did at the beginning of school where he pulled up war games and he played the clip about the password and how the teacher had the password under there that just that was kind of the still same problem we have is vulnerabilities with passwords lying around. And we still worry about that and the post-it notes under keyboards and all of those things. So my question with all of this is, how do we make our cybersecurity lessons accessible and meaningful? We have a lot of challenges and certain ones to tackle, but where do you start and what are the ways that you really help make an impact with your staff?
4: Great question. So this one is a big one as well because as we all know as sans put it securing the human is a critical piece because we could have unlimited funding we could have some of the best technologies in the world but if a user is compromised or if they're tricked or part of a social engineering scheme that bypasses all of those protections instantaneously and so the training piece is something that is harder right? And I feel this, especially as, again, for starting out in education at a small charter and then going to a small district and so forth. When you don't have the resources, it's difficult. It's much easier to write a check for, again, that example of a new firewall or new antivirus software or whatever it might be than it is to provide a training program. But there are ways you can do it. We're going to talk a little later, I think, about how county offices in particular are can be resources for our districts and charters out there. And I would share that we support our, our districts in San Diego in this way, which is we have, created a, a range of training videos that are, are used in a few different ways. So first and foremost, we do onboarding training and time is limited, right? Because there's so many things that people have to jump through with our friends in HR, run the HR gauntlet, as I like to call it, and watch videos, sign paperwork, complete forms, etc. So you don't have an unlimited amount of time with them, but we have a few short two to three minute videos that people can go through through our JPA Learning Library. These videos are available to our districts as well. So if they want to integrate that into their onboarding process, that at least helps you kind of get folks to a basic level of understanding and probably more importantly, letting them know that A, cybersecurity is important to our organization and B, Mm -hmm. in each of those, we have resources for reaching out for help and contact Mm -hmm. information, email addresses, phone numbers, etc. So people know that, hey, there's other folks that are here to support you and that this isn't something that we're looking to punish folks or call folks out or mm-hmm. make anyone feel uncomfortable, any intel or information you give us, you accidentally clicked on a link or you have mm-hmm. something else that's going on on your computer. We appreciate that feedback. We value that feedback mm-hmm. and we try to provide as much praise as possible when people do respond because sometimes that's uncomfortable, right? And sometimes people think, hey, maybe it's on me or a reflection mm-hmm. of my job performance. Absolutely not. These threats can can get pretty much anyone in any industry. Mm-hmm. So, so the onboarding piece, I would say, is important. We also have some follow-up videos, much like we do with sexual harassment prevention, mandated reporter, things that I know all of our listeners kind of roll their eyes and think to themselves, oh yeah, I remember mandated reporter and the multi-hour online training I had to go through or in person. Uh, And these are important, right? And, And so having a little bit of cybersecurity training sprinkled in annually as well. And again, we do that through our JPA and also have a little simple quizzes after each, like usually five question quizzes that, are, if you paid any attention, you'll be able to ace pretty easily. So those are two formats that we have adopted and use on not only the onboarding process, but on an annual basis that we have found that helps raise the awareness of our staff.
0: I like that. And I think when you put it in a place like that, as you alluded to, it sets the tone for your organization, that this is important here, this is a priority. And then also the idea that if you see something, say something, please report Mm -hmm. and... You're not in trouble. We just need to stop this or investigate as fast as possible. I think that's great.
4: If you click David, on something, say something.
0: Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> bumper sticker number 2 from this podcast. Thank you.
4: <laughs> because that's easy, right, to point fingers or to or to get on mm-hmm. someone's case. That person that calls up and says, "Hey, I thought I had an issue with my computer and I clicked on something and it had me call a number to get quote unquote tech support and I'm talking to someone and they want to connect to my computer and I, but I stopped and I think that something's not right. You think to yourself, well, why did you even answer that in the first place? But that you cannot communicate mm-hmm. in that way. It mm-hmm. needs to be supportive. It needs to be nurturing. It, it needs to be, it's kind of PBIS for adults, right? If we're mm-hmm. thinking in the educational context, it's, mm-hmm. it's how are we providing people that encouragement, that support, and even celebrating them. We'll go through emails that have been forwarded to us. And we'll periodically send out an email back to that individual and their manager and saying, hey, this was a big issue. Thank you for calling this out. You were the first person Mm -hmm. to forward this on to us. Your eyes and ears are a part of the solution. And thank you for Mm -hmm. your effort and time. So and people dig that, right? I mean, anyone Mm -hmm. likes to receive positive praise. And if there's a little note that goes to their boss as well, that's that's an added bonus. It costs you as an IT professional nothing right? Mm -hmm. So it's about building that trust, building a -hmm. a culture where people are free to share when they think something's just not quite right, or there's something Mm -hmm. clearly that is afoot.
1: And I think it's important to also note that when the human side goes uh, or does something a little bit wrong, it's really a failure of the technology. It's not really a failure of the person because we know how people are going to respond. Our Mm -hmm. technology just is inadequate to cope with that. We have to, we need to work to make those things better. But to your point, it's not not blaming the people because it really is the technology that failed.
0: Well, and the sophistication of the bad actors. If you check your spam folder, you can quickly find just the free for all, just hoping somebody is going to click, no Mm -hmm. care to make it deceptive. And then there are the ones that there's a lot of time and attention going after a CEO or your superintendent. And those ones are very sophisticated. So you're right. Sometimes I could argue that, yeah, you should have seen that. That was a pretty obvious one. But there are those that are just getting really, really crafty.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Certainly, the digital citizenship component is—it's again the full integration, I guess, full articulation of what it means to be in an IT manager and an IT governance, right, and also organizational management. So, as we have, and we did this in the classrooms primarily because of, um, you know, I would say cultural and political concerns, you know, hey, we're giving people access to the internet. Are we giving them Mm -hmm. any kind of educational benefits of like Uh how to behave on the internet? And also we had some federal mandates, right? For under e rate that we had to basically apply or provide digital citizenship opportunities for students uh, if we were going to be compliant. But as a whole, I think this is the year and even prior, um, you know, starting into last year, this is the year where digital citizenship, cybersecurity awareness at at an organizational level and the importance of IT in general into operations, they all really blend well together. Mm-hmm. And the digital citizenship cannot be extracted from cybersecurity practices, it cannot be extracted from general IT management or general IT governance practices. The digital citizenship <laughs> component is, is critical to user education, Part of what that baseline foundation is is hey, we are all connected. So the things that you do uh, will impact others, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes for the negative or things that you don't necessarily do will impact others, right? Understanding that as you're a better citizen online and your cyber hygiene and your IT hygiene is better, then the community's cyber hygiene, community's digital citizenship posture is better and your experience is improved because of it. So I, I think. That can't be extracted. Oftentimes, they're pretty discreetly different topic areas, but they do need to be interwoven, right? And, and I think some of the cybersecurity education components can happen vis-a-vis digital citizenship components. So like Terry said, don't be afraid to, you know, you're cultivating a culture, not of fear, but a culture of trust. So if you did click on something, the right thing to do as a good digital citizenship for your organization and someone on the internet is to let somebody know who can go and inspect and say, "Hey, your device is clean. This network segment is clean. Your resources are unaffected." Or, "Uh "Oh, we have a problem here. Let's see if we can remediate it faster, sooner than later, so we can minimize the damage." And by the way, this is not really going to reflect on your like negatively on your performance, or you know, you're not going to be held to account for this per se. But we want to use this as a learning opportunity. And and in fact, I think in general. Digital citizenship lessons are about learning opportunities like, mm-hmm. you know, the Internet still to some degree culturally is the Wild West. It's still all evolving. And so we're having to really expand our, our definition of what digital citizenship means. Right. I mean, think about what digital citizenship meant pre Facebook, pre Instagram, pre TikTok, totally different things. Right. Mm-hmm. And now digital citizenship, it, because so much of our life is online, digital citizenship Zoom, Right. It meant something different or had mm-hmm. a different component. Now, so much of our life is online. So much of our teaching is going to still stay online in one way or another. And so much of our district operations are gonna stay online. Digital citizenship is just a baseline way to couple with cybersecurity kind of best practices in order to kind of educate your your user base. And so I, I am a big fan of trying to say, we're not just doing cybersecurity training. We're doing general digital citizenship training. So in the same lesson that you might say, please don't use all caps <laughs> for every single one of your messages and please don't use reply all, by the way, before you click on a link in your email, how are you going to investigate to see whether that was a legitimate link, right? So now you've blended those. Here's how our operations and our procedures and policies kind of expect you to behave professionally and as a, as a digital citizenship and organization. And also here's how to keep yourself safe.
1: Don't forget the uh, the mute button in your meeting. Yes. It's another component of good digital citizenship.
2: Yeah, it, it's a way it's, it's setting norms. It's setting yeah, norms, that's right? Fantastic. How much of us learned that managing large Zoom meetings or WebEx meetings isn't really a technical challenge in many cases, it's a norms challenge. It's an organization's challenge. It's a users a user education challenge. And, and I'm not downplaying some of the technical logistics of those things, sure. I and mean, it can be complicated. But most of the things that would derail a meeting or you're worried about were violations of norms. And if you didn't set those norms and you didn't educate the users, on those norms, how would you expect them to maintain them, right? And and, and a lot of what can benefit an organization for cybersecurity best practices are norms, are are really norms.
4: And our teachers themselves have had so much on their plates, not only during COVID, but pre-COVID. And it really is a huge ask to add anything additional to their plate. And so, pointing out that things like common core standards, state standards, there are components in there specific to both staying safe online and and digital privacy. And so these different programs, whether it's common sense media or other tools or platforms that I know many of our district listeners have probably implemented or seen or are thinking about implementing, that this is, you can find a way so that this isn't that quote, one more thing that you're putting on a teacher's plate. It's coming alongside, it's providing resources and maybe even helping kind of Accelerate that process. We're making it easier for your instructional staff by by providing those materials or curriculum or other resources, so that then they can weave those in in a very natural way, without this being some big onerous item that has to be bolted on top of all the other things that are happening in the classroom. So, I think that piece is important to be able to speak to that, to those connections, to be able to support and serve teachers. After all, IT is something that we do with and for people, right? Not to them. And so, maybe that's another bumper sticker.
0: Mm-hmm. Number three.
4: <laughs> but, but it truly is something that can be woven into, regardless of grade level, the standards and taught in a way that, again, does that kind of securing the human, if you will, or raising awareness and, and, and skill set, which we know is good not only in school life, but also in your private life. What I have seen in the districts that I've been in is that as teachers engage in this uh, curriculum and they work with their students on these projects, they learn a lot from their students as well students in some projects will have to go home and teach their parents about being Mm -hmm. safe online or Mm -hmm. do some sort of activity or exercise or project in class that then raises the awareness or or piques the interest of other students, Mm -hmm. the the teacher, family members. It really is kind of a virtuous cycle, if you will, that can be distributed. And again, you don't need a dedicated team of cybersecurity trainers that are going out to to individual classrooms or to work sites or things of that nature. Yes, there's things where the onerous is, the is Is very much on the IT staff. But as with everything else, when you're partnering with your staff, whether it's certificated, classified, or management, you can find some powerful partnerships.
0: I love that. I could share one fun story is I had a student reach out last year and he really is into cybersecurity and that's the field he wants to go into. So he wanted to start a cybersecurity club. And as the CTO, I'm presumably the techiest person on the planet, right? So that that he comes to me. I'm like, absolutely. He knows more than I do about cybersecurity. It's brilliant. But he's creating our phishing tests for our teachers. And they're okay being quizzed by a student versus me doing it. And that's been really positive. And I don't think that's you know, something that could be successful in every district. I think it really is about knowing the culture, but for our district, we've had kids who are trainers during our Google boot camps and things like that. So the teachers are used to the kids teaching them. So it was a natural progression, but he made his fishing test really, really hard and he impersonated the principal and caught a lot of teachers. So we talked to him now about let's make them easy. So the teachers can win round one. And then we'll move on to the more sophisticated ones, but it's been really fun. But Terry, I know you've been doing some of that work in a more professional manner in terms of training and testing your users. Can you tell us a little bit about your Red Herring project and what that is?
4: Yes. As we know, that phishing and social engineering and scams in general are the easiest attack vector for the bad actors that are out there. And so we keep talking about the, the human element and, and rightly so. And for us, the training platform we were looking at, we evaluated a number of different tools that I won't mention here, but everything we looked at was ranged in quality, but all ser- shared a, a common trait that they were very expensive. And for those of us uh, in education, I know a lot of our listeners will empathize with this. You have very uh, constrained budgets, right? You you don't have an un- unlimited pot of money to draw from. And so open and us, partially out of frustration, I said to my team, because we we are lucky to have an applications development team within my division, that what would it take to do some of these things around training, around phishing, what can we do around providing reporting, and how can we have this be something that, again, is not a gotcha, but something that really helps our build the capacity of our staff around cybersecurity. And so we developed a platform called Red Herring. The name is meant to be kind of that play on sending things that are maybe unofficial or or, or fake. And what it does, quite frankly, is, is allow you to load all of your, your users into the environment and schedule to either to groups, your entire organization subsets, departments, et cetera, of specific school sites to receive these phishing emails, which are safe, of course, to see if users will click on the link. And if they do, it takes them to a page that provides a short training video, some other guidelines and resources. It's all web-based. So we've got different portals that our different districts can use to set up and craft their own messages. So you can build out those emails that are sent. It automatically does the spoofing for you so that you can have it come from the president of the United States or a billionaire in Nigeria that wants you to hold on to some of their money temporarily. And you can really have some fun with it as well. And, and again, what it does for us, in addition to providing that kind of automated training, if you will, with some of those videos that we have, again, providing the resources to, to that staff member. And also, again, over time, we what we call our frequent flyers, mm-hmm. those that are, are regularly clicking on things. To the point raised earlier, we don't see that as the fault of the person. Shane was talking about the technology, and I would say that goes even further to the training. I see that as is something that's lacking on my team if we aren't providing relevant training or information so that they're equipped to be responsive. So, and so there's, again, some reporting and some other details that, that that can be gathered there. And it's a comprehensive tool that really helps IT staff, even an army of one, if you will, in a, in a small district mm-hmm. or charter, be able to schedule these, send them out. In fact, I, I heard from one of our district customers that said, hey, I, I planned out the whole coming year and I've got these different phishing emails and then the associated training and I scheduled it and then I can forget it. And, and it automatically sends out those details. The other piece that's great about this is, uh, is tapping into what, David noted uh, about this kind of non-competitive nature that we're lucky to be in with Mm -hmm. education, which is you can share those email templates and also the training templates or other resources, videos, PDFs, et cetera. Within the platform, with each other. So now that we've uh, rolled this out, and it's starting to catch on very quickly across the state, we're seeing some of our districts, some of our charters, starting to to load some really clever messages and so forth. And, and we encourage folks to start easy. To your point, Jamie, you know you don't want to start right out of the gate with something that looks super official that mm-hmm. was, you know, has relevant details that really is a tough one to spot. We'll do, you know, those initial ones that are outlandish or have odd spellings or poor grammar and silly. And it was uh, one of our initial ones was click here to get the super secret Mrs. Fields cookie recipe. Uh, (laughs) You know, so, and and so we've done a lot of different things to have fun with it. And and we have found that when we inject, try to inject some humor that people pre-COVID that is would, you know, chat in the hallway or say, oh, hey, did Mm -hmm. you fall for that one? No. Or Mm -hmm. did you see that, that email that came through from it today? So we want to gamify or make it as fun as possible, lower people's anxiety. And again, those people that are regularly not clicking on links, we're we're still in the process of finding some new ways to celebrate those folks as well. Mm. So so anyways, I don't want this to necessarily be a marketing pitch, but the Red Herring platform is available to all K-12 institutions throughout the state. We can give you some more details on there's a small implementation cost as it stands right now. And I know I'm putting this on the record, but it's only 50 cents per FTE per year. The cost is almost nothing, but it's mm-hmm. just enough so that we can do a cost recovery model for our costs to, to host the solution in the cloud and to, to maintain and provide updates. And that's another bit of functionality, too, that we've added recently is ways for districts and charters to put their comments in on like what they would like to see. And so we're adding new features to our internal roadmap, and we're going to continue to develop this. So for a very, very low cost, you can have a platform. And, and Jamie, this would be a great one for you from the standpoint of you could allow student access access just to craft those emails, for example. And so they could, he could, or she could put things together. You know, you could give the stamp of approval or, and be kind of the, the unofficial editor first. And then that could be part of what goes out so that it truly, even though it's from this professional platform, it truly mm-hmm. is from, from students, or maybe you get a group of students that want to brainstorm and put some fun things together. So it can be used a lot of different ways. I,
0: awesome. I think we'll, uh, made that as a note. I will be emailing you soon to get that set up.
1: We'll definitely provide a link to that in our show notes, so be sure to check that. So, Brendan, we've talked about some training resources available through SDCOE. Um, Is there anything uh, that you want to talk about that MSISAC can provide?
3: Absolutely. So at the MSISAC, we actually have what's called our cyber market. And that is where private industry reaches out to us and essentially has a collective purchasing agreement for all of our members. And one of the biggest partners that we have is actually SANS. So all of our members have access to discounted training through the SANS Institute. One that Terry had mentioned is securing the human. That is one that all of our staff members actually have to take as well when they first become an employee at CIS. And that is one that all of our members have access to and can purchase that at a pretty significant discount. These do come in buying windows, one of them being in June, July uh, and then the second window is at the end of the year, that uh, November, December, January timeframe. But we actually have some discounts happening throughout the year. And there's actually one going on right now. And just to give everybody a little bit of a perspective of what kind of discounts you can expect, the typical cost for the training course that we're offering right now is about eight dollars to $9,000. And our members are able to purchase vouchers for just about $2,000. So it is a pretty significant discount. And that is actually not the only training resource that's available through the MSISAC. There are also free resources that are available to all MSISAC members, as well as just all SLTTs or state, local, tribal, territorial governments, including public school districts. One of the biggest ones that we like to push is the federal virtual training environment. This would be more so for your technical staff members. But it is everything from introductory courses in cybersecurity all the way up to training resources to uh, try and obtain your CISSP. So just knowing what training resources are out there at either reduced cost or no cost at all can be huge for school districts.
1: Oh, that's that's great, Brendan. We'll, of course, put those links in the show notes as well. Uh, appreciate that information. Yeah.
0: So I think we should do a rapid fire call to action since we've covered so much today. I think there are just a couple highlights that I want to make sure our listeners walk away kind of knowing, understanding, and taking away. So first, I want to ask our panelists, what would be, if you could name two to three things just quickly, what should our listeners be doing right now in terms of cybersecurity if we're talking about kind of those high levels? And I think specifically coming to mind, like the LCAP or knowing what your county office can offer.
1: Want to take that one, David?
2: Sure. I mean, I would say, first of all, sign up for MSISAC. Everybody should be a member. I would actually even extend that to sign up for the CISA cybersecurity or cyber hygiene report card. I mean, it's only an external facing scan but uh, it'll give you some good insights and start to on your um, cybersecurity kind of journey, right? Your practice. On a technical level, I'd say implement two-factor authentication where possible just to, to minimize the amount of account takeovers and removing admin accounts where possible. I mean, that's a much different discussion. On a practical side, get familiar with the CIS controls and reach out to your county office of education to see what services they may be able to provide or what educational efforts they may be able to help with. And then I would also suggest Explore or identify your opportunities for end-user education. Awesome, Terry. Anything you want to add to
1: that list?
4: Yeah, first I I'd agree with the MSI SAC, and again, Brendan is a is a great resource. He's doing some presentations for us here locally. We're going to be I know CITES is working on a number of presentations as well throughout the state, which is fantastic, and they have recurring events as well, which I I think David brought up in our in our pre-conversation previously. We I got an email this morning for getting smarter about K-12 cybersecurity from MSI and pass that on to some of my folks. And so there's an hour-long presentation next week on specifically the the K-12 segment. And so and these are free, and and we all love free, right? That's key to maximizing the limited resources. As far as other items, yeah, absolutely the LCAP. That's been something that I've been pushing and advocating for with my counterparts that are in our districts and our charter schools, that cybersecurity isn't a one and done. Cybersecurity is something that for good or for bad is on everybody's radar now, right? I think particularly in the last 10 years with Anthem, Home Depot breach, I mean, I could go on and on. The general public is aware that this is a big issue. And so it's not as tough of a sell air quotes around cell. But as you're talking just like you would about large infrastructure projects or a one-to-one initiative or anything else that impacts teaching and learning, IT folks need to be at the table when you're talking about the LCAP. Cybersecurity needs to be part of your, your agenda to share, to raise awareness with maybe that LCAP committee that is looking at the different priorities. Because once you get into your LCAP, then you're really looking at something that is that you hope to have budgeted on a recurring basis. Because uh, again, one year, of acquiring one device or or a handful of uh, cybersecurity devices or software is not going to be the solution. This is a long journey. Even if you did have everything you needed today, the landscape will change in a week and there'll be other things to consider. So LCAP, 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 I would say to folks and and be part of that conversation. The other one too, again, uh, that you touched on, Jamie, is the Really, county offices of education are, are there for folks. I know David has been a stellar partner to a lot of his districts and, and LEAs. We are happy to support our districts in our county. And as looking at our colleagues, uh, David and mine, across the the, the 58 counties in, in the state of California, obviously, like our, our districts and schools, some are very large, some are are very, very small. But that doesn't mean you can't reach out to your your leaders. There's many of our colleagues that are lead very small COEs. Maybe they have an IT team of maybe two or three people as opposed to my 110. It varies, but those people can connect you to those that can help you out. Right. I know they would say, Oh, hey, David could probably help you out with this, or Terry would be a great resource to have this conversation or this tool, or hey, someone at another COE implemented this platform and could give you some guidance and feedback. So Again, going back to that, uh, we really need to maximize that fact that we are not in competition with each other. In fact, mm-hmm. you know, the very definition of best use of public funds is for us to collaborate, for mm-hmm. us to knowledge share. And if I might, again, that's the value I've seen in my many years being part of Site, previously SETPA and SEDPA. It's a hugely important organization from a people standpoint and connecting mm-hmm. and sharing best practices and sharing failures. Again, people need to be vulnerable, not cybersecurity (laughs) vulnerable, mind you, but from a personality (laughs) standpoint, that it's okay to share that something you tried a project or a new tool and it, you know, figuratively blew up in your face. That's okay. Let's share those things. Let's learn from each other and, you know, let's collectively do the best things that we can for our students and staff. So absolutely would highly recommend reaching out to your, your county offices of education. Quite frankly, that's why we exist is to support the LEAs in our community. So those would be my two uh, primary points that I would repeat again and again without fail as LCAP and, and use your county offices for support. Thank you, Terry. Brandon, anything you'd like to share about a call
3: to action or immediate steps could be taken from, from MSI SAC or CIS's perspective? Absolutely. Definitely to reiterate, David and Terry, join the MSI SAC, And I don't want to air quotes, sell anything here, but membership is completely free. So you don't have to worry about MSI charging for pretty much anything that we have to offer. So join the MSI It's really simple to get started um, and you immediately start gaining access to all of our intelligence and all of our free resources. And then there is one thing, too, that I want to pitch really quickly and kind of picking up right where Terry left off with sharing information and just collaborating. The MSI SAC and me specifically, we are starting up a K-12 working group. The goal of this is to do exactly that. And it is to share information, not just within state lines or county lines, but also just across the entire country. So, if anyone's interested in joining that, you can reach out to me directly. Um, happy to have as many members as possible. You know, we're really just starting this working group and it hasn't even really come out yet to the membership, but that is something that is coming. So, collaboration is extremely important and join the MSI SAC and learn about all the free resources that are available, whether it's the CIS controls, the CIS benchmarks, or moving even further into some of our our active blocking services. For example, our malicious domain blocking and reporting service. This is a a DNS-focused blocking service that's extremely easy to implement. There's no hardware or software required. All it is is pointing your DNS towards our third-party vendor, and you immediately start blocking some of that malicious traffic. So just know what free resources are available to you.
1: Awesome! Thank you for sharing it. That's that's breaking news on the uh, Insight Podcast yeah. there about the uh, the working group. That's that's thank right you for sharing that. And uh, I guess we'll have to share your contact information in the show notes as well, so people can reach out to you if they're interested in that.
0: Well, I just want to say thank you so much to our guests, Brendan, Terry, David. This has been an amazing conversation, and I have. I had notes from our pre-meeting and I have even more notes now that I'm going to compile and just so many wonderful ideas. I want to give a shout out to our site staff, Laurel Nava, Tuda Bentitau, Andrea Bennett for supporting this podcast. We'd love to give our guests just a minute for any shout outs, gratitude or appreciation. So anything else you want to add, you guys get a, get a minute of airtime
2: huge shout out to the site community at large. Those who participate are better because of it. And that's where I'll leave it. Um, big shout out to the site staff. Like you said, Tuda, Andrea, uh, Libby, Bree, Heather, uh, and Laurel. Um, massive amounts of work that go on there uh, in the organization, all done by staff. So big shout out to them as well.
4: I would completely agree with that. Again, lots of kudos to site and to all of our listeners. For even just taking the time today, either on your drive home or drive into work or both, maybe in this case. It's uh, the wrong one. So it's definitely both. Right, right. For everything that you're doing, it's been an incredibly challenging and traumatic year. And it's easy to sometimes talk about a singular topic, but I think everybody on this panel knows the challenges, the difficulties, the loss that so many of our folks have gone through. So thank you for everything you do to support kids and staff. Yeah, shout out to everybody listening to all of our K twelve technology colleagues across the state. I'd like to give a shout out to my team at the STCOE. I'm, I'm I'm honored to serve alongside some of the greatest uh, K twelve technologists uh, around, and to our district and charter technology leaders who, like all of you, are working super hard every single day. So, and, and a shout out to David and all of my colleagues at the county level. Again, we're working very very hard to continue to evolve, innovate, and 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 provide solutions and resources to our just. And charters that help you move your organization forward. Thank you so much,
1: Terry. And then finally, Brendan, anything you want to? Uh, anything you need to plug?
3: Yeah, I absolutely cannot thank the site staff enough for always including the MSI SAC on all kinds of presentations. Just being a part of the site community for me, about two years now, working with site has been absolutely incredible. Seeing everything that California is doing for all of their school districts is really a sight to see. I will say you guys are definitely leading the charge compared to other school districts and not that other states aren't taking, taking action, but me personally, I see this every day working with all you folks. So it's, it's really incredible. I appreciate the opportunity to come on here and talk about some things related to the MSI SAC and pitch some of our services as free as they are they do still cost time. So thank you for having me. Thank everybody in the site staff and also the county offices of education. Seeing education offices actually taking a stance in cybersecurity is, is not something that a lot of office of educations do, surprisingly. They focus so hardcore on curriculum and the students learning that cybersecurity sometimes takes a, a, a sidestep. So seeing that this is extremely important to all of you as well is, is huge to me. Thank you. Absolutely, thank you, Brandon.
1: Uh, Jamie, you want to take the final question?
0: All right, last question, and this one will be quick. So, would you rather, David? We're going to start with you. Would you rather have battery power on your phone or tablet, unlimited wherever you are, or free Wi-Fi wherever you go?
2: Uh, I have a great uh, data plan, so battery power. <laughs> excellent. Plus, Brandon, I, I feel a little more, a little safer, not on everybody's strange Wi-Fi. You didn't right. say secured Wi-Fi.
4: Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> excellent
3: point. <laughs> Brendan, what about you?
0: Battery or Wi-Fi?
3: Yeah, I would absolutely go down the battery route. Not having to be plugged in all the time is huge. And like David, I have unlimited internet on my devices. So not too worried about the Wi-Fi aspect. And it's also a little bit more secure.
0: That's great. Terry?
4: Well, with the caveat that it's secure, uh, yeah. I would actually go with the Wi-Fi. I've got lots of devices. And so being able to freely access Wi-Fi would probably be the the direction I would go.
0: Thank you everyone so much. It was an excellent show. And I look forward to partnering with you all on other projects. You'll be hearing from me soon, I'm sure. Thank you for having Absolutely. Us.
1: See you guys. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.